As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Mercedes returns to the scene of its only victory under these ground effect regulations when George Russell took his first and only Grand Prix win last year. But can lightning strike again at Interlagos, or will it be Red Bull all the way once again? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Val Harunji and special guest Lito Cavalcanti. Well, Lito, we'll come to you first. We've had you on our podcast before, but usually it's an annual thing for the Brazilian Grand Prix, so uh, great to have you joining us. But you're also doing something for the race in Brazil as well now. Yes, yes. I'm really happy to be here with you once again. Uh, yes, we've been doing the, the race Brazil, Brazilian part of the race. Uh, it's been quite successful here, uh, despite being still very, very new. We started in late July, but yesterday we reached 12,000 followers. We're quite happy with this the progression. Yeah, and that's on YouTube and in Portuguese. So good for those who are Portuguese speakers. I'm sure it's very good, but obviously my Portuguese, as we discovered when I was trying to order you a coffee a minute ago, isn't great still. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yes, it's just just a translation, but uh, it's top-notch material. So uh, it's been quite good. Uh, it's been well, f- uh, how to say, uh, it's been welcome from, from the public. Excellent. Well, it's great to uh, have you as part of the team. And for those who don't know him, Lito's a, a Brazilian journalist of, of many decades, commentator as well in the past, so knows Formula One and Brazilian motorsport absolutely inside out. And we'll get into some of that uh, later on. And Val, welcome back to the podcast. You're not here with us in Interlagos, unfortunately, but uh, do you enjoy the Brazilian Grand Prix from afar? It's one of my favourites. I'm always intrigued to know if others do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, it's one of the best tracks on the calendar and basically Im- impossible to get rid of. That's that's how I see. For me, it's growing up. This is I'm, I'm not usually this honest and direct. I'm more jokey to start things, but you know, growing up, this is basically the F1 track. When when I started watching Formula One, it's it's the one that I think of when I close my eyes and imagine Formula One. I'm also doing my part. Uh, to make this a Brazilian GP edition special. As you can see, this is a Chelsea jersey. On the back is Jorginho, famously does not represent the Brazilian national team, but he was, in fact, born in Brazil. It's a complete coincidence. I just realized it two minutes ago, but hey, it'll do. Well, you've managed to connect it up, which is good. Very, very good. In fact, we're going to go and see some football later. So uh, we're very much in a Brazilian football uh, football mood. But Lito is a Botafogo fan. Doing very well, top of the league. Yes, yes. It's been leading the national championship since the first round, but it's a tough moment. Tonight's going to be a tough match against Palmeiras. That's Palmeiras that's following us quite closely. 
Unfortunately, that's not the match we're going to because uh, Rio is a bit far away. Is it a home game? Is it in Rio? Yes. Of course, yeah, because if, if it was here, we could go to that one, couldn't we, in uh, Palmeiras? Yeah. So anyway, enough football talk. We will try and keep the chat to Formula One, but you have to do a little bit of football in Brazil. I think it's uh, it's mandatory. So let, let's get on to this weekend, Val, because it was Brazil last year when Mercedes last won a Grand Prix. George Russell took that first win after winning the sprint, of course. So how convinced are you by the recent Mercedes progress? Can you see any chance of it ending its latest wind drought this weekend? Uh, I mean, yeah, I can see any chance. I can see any chance of basically anything happening in Interlagos. I mean, I can see any chance of like five cars winning. Let's say four. Four is four is an okay number, but in all likelihood, it's one that's the the heavy favorite. Uh, you know, going by last year, obviously, it's it's easy to see why Mercedes would should maybe have a, a special eye on, out in this weekend because obviously last year the the car was fantastic. And Interlagos, and so far the run of form that we have had leading up to this race, it has generally kind of largely resembled last year. At least I think Total Wolf seemed to indicate that that's also their understanding, and it's you know from a from a cursory glance that is that is what it looks like. I mean they were they were actively bad at Suzuka. They were not good at Suzuka last year. They were very good at Kota until the car was disqualified. But yeah, they were also very good at Kota last year. They were pretty good at Mexico. They were pretty good at Mexico last year. Maybe better this year than last year. And then, of course, last year, uh, the Mercedes cars dominated Brazil. But the, the problem with that is it obviously it wasn't just the manifestation of the real pecking order, or at least that's my understanding looking back at it. It's It was... Red Bull dropping the ball, right? So the idea that that would definitively happen again this weekend, because that is what it is going to take, I suspect. I'm I'm not so convinced. I'm not so sure. It is a sprint weekend again, so that will help that opportunity. But at the same time, uh, this year's Mercedes is not a fantastic sprint weekend car. I've looked through their sprint results, just you know, juggling my memory. It does not particularly suit Mercedes, does it? Their car is just not not you've unpacked it and immediately goes great that's just not the kind of car it clearly is right now and maybe the upgrade will have helped a little bit with that but i'm i'm not convinced but there's a shot there's always a shot especially if if weather is variable if weather is variable then all bets are off even though you know the last whenever i think back a recent mixed weather formula one weekend it does always feel like max just has eight nine tenths in hand over basically everyone yeah, well, I have to say, when I picked up my hire car yesterday at the airport, it was raining like you would not believe. Very much uh, Brazilian rain, I tend to think of that. But I think the weather's brightening up a little bit. It's been quite a wet spell recently, Lito was telling me, uh, yesterday. But it is interesting, isn't it, Lito? Because last year, Red Bull seemed to struggle on setup. They couldn't get the front tyre, well, the front grip, rather. Struggled with balance and just degradation on the front was was poor so just one of those weekends where things went together it's a tricky track isn't it into Lagos in terms of getting the car in the window so I guess that's the the real question if the sprint weekend format can shuffle things because teams aren't right with how they got the car well there's always a chance but uh I will be very very surprised if it's not uh, uh Red Bull Max Verstappen's win uh because uh the problems that Red Bull had last year, they have no more. The car is in magnificent sta- uh, stage. And so I, d- I really don't, don't think they can do uh, a real, can, that Mercedes can be a real threat to, to Red Bull. But I think they are uh, the, best, the best bet to second place, no doubt. Because Mercedes fits, or Interlagos fits Mercedes traditionally quite well. Mercedes has been improving in the last three races, but not enough. Yeah, it was interesting because last year, Mercedes had an upgrade at the USA Grand Prix. that was an aero upgrade and they lightened the car a bit. They were then quick in Mexico, could maybe have won in Mexico if qualifying gone perfectly and they'd maybe been a bit better strategically. So their form has been good this year, but not quite at that level. So that'll be interesting. Obviously, qualifying is always the uh, the interesting question because Red Bull's not quite as, as strong in qualifying, despite having plenty of pole positions, I think. McLaren have probably struggled a little bit because of the track configuration with their car weaknesses, although their weaknesses are getting a bit better than they have been, although there's still a lot of work to do. And Ferrari, I don't think, certainly in qualifying, we can count out. So it's going to be 
an interesting one in that regard in terms of uh, uh, of who goes well. Val, do you think we could be seeing one of those weekends where maybe somebody gets ahead of Verstappen in qualifying at least, even if Red Bull then turns out to be in a different league come race day? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's... I mean, for 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 whatever my hunch is worth, yeah, that's that's the weekend I'm imagining. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that you know, wouldn't be surprised if Charles Leclerc overtakes whoever it is he drew level with on poles last time out. I think he's got the most the most pole positions without a world championship was a stat that I saw before, which does, doesn't, yeah. which I don't and think he, reflects on him. I think it reflects on the car he's been driving, particularly for the last few years, as well yeah. as 2019, how profligate Ferrari were. Yeah, and it reflects also the the amount of races in a season and the the pattern that's held. Even if you hold that pattern for a couple of seasons, you know that kind of thing can happen now with the amount of races that you have. That if you have a good qualifying car that's not such a good race car, you can rack up pole after pole after pole over these twenty attempts and then not convert any of them. And yeah, it's Fernando Alonso he drew level with. So if he does if he does pole this weekend, he'll be one clear of Alonso and one behind PK and Lauda. <laughs> Well, there we go. There's some very big names out. I think that probably tells you something about how quick Charles Leclerc is, and hopefully he'll have a car in the future where he can win a bit more regularly. But Lita, let's talk a bit about the drivers. Lewis Hamilton's the full man for Mercedes, but what do you make of last year's winner, George Russell? He's been struggling a bit recently compared to his teammate, hasn't he? Yeah, he is, for sure. Uh, I don't know if there's any connection, but since the they renew their contracts, I think things got a little uh, tougher between them. And he's facing now uh, Hamilton with more motivation. At least that's what I'm I'm feeling. And and to fight Hamilton in such a uh, mindset is tough for anyone. And I don't think that uh, Russell can can change things right now, right here at Interlagos. Interlagos is a track. Brazil is a special place for Lewis. He's a honorary Brazilian now since last season. And I think this puts him up. Yeah, certainly. He's been on a bit of a high recently. I think certainly the extra confidence he's got in the rear of the car. The upgrade hasn't made it massively quicker, but he just seems a little bit happier with the rear end since that uh, Austin upgrade, which has helped. But it's been interesting because Russell's been saying that last year he felt he took most of his opportunities, but this year it's like it's it's been half and half. So it's it's been a funny disjointed season for him. Earlier in the year, he was a lot stronger, but it's a bit like last year, isn't it? When he had the edge on Hamilton and then when Hamilton really hit his stride, he realised, oh, actually, there's, there's a bit more in this guy so it's uh it's tough isn't it yes and you know uh, george is fighting harder to get worse results than hamilton and i think that when it comes to interlagos things can be even harder for him because what we just said brazil is special for for lewis it's not going to hurt as much because like i think by this point george russell will have expected in his career progression to be the the king of the mountain at Mercedes, but it, it won't hurt as much that he isn't because the car isn't good enough to, to win championships or win races right now. So if if you're going to have growing pains in a learning period, this is still the time to do it. It I wouldn't say it alarms me because I, I think it's it's insane to suggest something is alarming when a driver is growing going up against another driver, widely considered one of, if not the best of all time, and isn't that far off and specifically over one lap obviously isn't that far off but i think if it's not alarming it's a little bit maybe indicative of or telling that i'm not actually sure there's been over like a a global performance shift since they started together and i don't mean like moment to moment upgrade to upgrade race to race but i mean just you know globally like we've seen at red bull when verstappen came in and slowly but surely phased out Daniel Ricciardo as the the lead driver of the team or as Ferrari when Charles Leclerc came in and actually quite rapidly phased out Sebastian Vettel as the lead driver of the team. Um, Russell arrived and he was immediately quite solid over one lap against Lewis Hamilton and we've seen that again and again we've seen that this season we've seen that last season it you know it oscillates it feels right now that Hamilton is in a in a sweeter moment when it comes to qualifying it feels that you know when you look at the you take a random comparison of lap times, you maybe sometimes do expect right now, Lewis, to be two tenths quicker or so. But, you know, two tenths is, it's okay. It's not great, but it's it's okay. But in race trim, I I am not convinced that 
George has ever been a match yet. And I'm not convinced that anybody particularly has. I mean, it's just Lewis and races when there's, you know, when there's tired egg, when you need to eke out something special from a stint. There's there's no drivers who do that. It's it's as simple as that. And George was made to look very, very ordinary in Mexico, not just by his own struggles, by but what Lewis did with the with the medium tire in that final stint and just generally, but I don't think it's some sort of crazy outlier. It's maybe on the higher end of the range, but generally when Lewis Hamilton is behind George Russell in a race, you expect them to converge a little bit. And th that happens pretty often because George Russell is a good qualifier and has been in his time at Mercedes, but that mastery over race stint that is, I think, Lewis's maybe best claim to be greatest of all time, like best non-statistical claim, you know, best claim of what does he bring to the table that you that like stuns you, that shocks you when you look at the light timing. That's that's not available to to Russell yet, and that's fine. You you know he's still he's still young. He's still got plenty of time. Every year he he's going to get more and more experience. I can't imagine Mercedes is particularly unhappy with him in any in any meaningful way. But also there's no guarantee he'll get there because again, this is the level Lewis Hamilton is in in on Sundays is it's something, isn't it? And we've been privileged to watch it it's made some seasons less good but it's you know it's very much an indelible part of recent f1 history and i think the point about the tire management is significant because russell throughout his time at mercedes actually he's had a bit of a tendency sometimes in stints to go that little bit harder early on and then that doesn't help him so much later on i remember he did that right in the first race in bahrain last year singapore uh this year i think was another race where that happened so many races now <laughs> trying to call the, the details to mind uh, instantly um become a bit tricky but we have seen that pattern on the higher deck races quite often it, it, it's quite striking actually now the points difference Hamilton's on 220 Russell's on only 151 now points can be an unreliable witness I think that's George Russell would say he's been a little bit unfortunate this year but he is frustrated with his execution so he's pushing himself and and knows he needs to raise his game a bit what, what do you think Lito of George Russell kind of globally He's, he's seen as a, a future world champion status driver. He's got a lot of ability. But do you think that his comparison with Hamilton is showing maybe there's that little step he needs to take to get to that level? Or do you see him as a star? I think that at, at the end of the day, he will benefit from these hard moments he's facing now. Because he, he's a clever guy and for sure he's going to take uh, very useful lessons from, from this... Uh, this partnership with 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 Hamilton. Well, he's seen closely uh, a multi champion at work, and he's the one who's got the best chance to to learn from him. But it's it should be a little tough at the moment because the season has not been up to what he expected. Yeah, and I think it's important to note Hamilton is still operating at a very very high level this isn't an ailing sliding declining Hamilton this is a Hamilton who's still absolutely got it in him yeah because that's that's the kind of like that particular skill doesn't seem to be one that particularly goes away with age right like if there's if there's a part of a Formula One driver skill set that ages the most gracefully it's this again I going back to that Ferrari Vettel Leclerc year I mean you'd, you'd watch Leclerc stomp on him in qualifying and then you'd look at the race pace and it you know you wouldn't really see a huge difference and sometimes I think you would even, at, at certain races, you would see moments where it, it felt like Vettel, after being nowhere over one lap, was more effective than Leclerc in in race conditions. And that's just, you know, that's, I guess, that's a part that leans a lot on experience and on just, you know, automation and knowing what you do. But that's not to take anything away from, from Vettel, but specifically right now from Lewis, who just who clearly has spectacular mastery of that kind of thing. And... Whose, whose edge in that particular regard clearly is not being blunted in any way by him being 38 now. And you'd expect him to do this also at 39 and at 40 and at however far that contract is going. I wonder how long that sentence was going to last. But yeah, uh, certainly, um, yeah. And he's still very, very quick with all of that uh, as well. But just wrapping up on the topic of Mercedes, Val, were you surprised by the announcement that Chief Technical Officer Mike Elliott is leaving the team? I guess not, but... Uh, to say more would be to 
imply sort of a uh, not not just a personal knowledge, but I think a collective knowledge of what was really happening behind the scenes during the the pivotal decision to uh, quote unquote promote Mike Elliott out of the basically out of the firing line and out of the chief F one designer role and make him was he chief technical officer? Is that the is that the role he's he's giving up right now? Yeah, so. I think what happened in that moment is inevitably central to what has happened now. And the Mercedes rhetoric about that has been that he, I don't want to use the word jump because again, they've painted it as a promotion. So you don't jump to a promotion. It's not, but that he was jumped rather than be pushed. Right. But at the same time, we all know that Mercedes has significantly underdelivered in the hybrid era, and that much is clear. And Mike Elliott won't have been the the central figure, or certainly the only person responsible for the zero pod concept that's now gone. But he was its public face, and he was basically in charge of the F1 car design at the time where that was on the F1 car design. So it depends. Again, it depends on the exact mechanics of how how his initial change of role happened, I think, that really informs what has happened now. But even if he stepped aside, maybe at a certain point, he just realized, well, I'm not that role, I'm not getting back. But now I have to take stock and really think of what, what I want to do, what, what, my, what my project is. And I, if I liked that previous role at Mercedes, I can't have it back. I imagine that's not really something that anybody's considering. So whether he could search for that kind of role somewhere else within Formula One or whether a different project role at a different project. Now, he's been there for 11 years, bit of change of scenery, never too bad after that kind of time. So I, I wouldn't say I was too surprised, but I, I don't know how to really color my emotion because, again, this is this whole jump or jumped or was pushed thing that I, I don't feel I have a great grasp on. And I don't feel any of us do. No, exactly. Well, uh, to be honest, I get the impression that... I mean, he did surprise me in terms of the timing because he was in Austin, uh, Mike Elliott, certainly. I didn't see him in wherever we were last week, Mexico. I lose track of where I am. Um, but I get the impression this is probably Elliott's decision. And we always have to remember these are real people with real lives. And there's sometimes other reasons why they want, might want to move on and, and do other things. So, yeah, I think probably it's... It's a thing where you have to reflect on the contribution he's made over over time. He joined as the aero head. He was chief technology officer, then technical director, and now chief technical officer. So yeah, he's he's certainly done his done his job with Mercedes and contributed to that huge run of seven drivers and eight constructors championship successes. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sure Mercedes is completely forthright in it in its current description of this being as you know Mike Elliott's decision. This this exact decision. I'm sure that if if Mike Elliott had wanted to continue in his current role, that I can't imagine that would have been a problem. But it's just, it's a question of what they could offer within that or, you know, what, what role, what responsibilities could be offered and whether the, the views of the, the corporation and the person totally aligned or not. And also, it, yeah, it could absolutely just be personal stuff, which we, we are not privy to and do not need to be privy to. So... Yeah, exactly. And there's also the cost cap dimension. If you've got somebody who's working on F1 in a significant way, they contribute towards that. So that could also play a part in it in terms of moving people around. But yeah, certainly, I think it it would be very unfair to see this as just some stamp of absolute failure from, (laughs) from Mike Elliott. He's been a very important player in that team for over a decade so good luck to him with what he does in the future I'm sure we'll see him back around Formula 1 in the future. He's he's too, uh, too skilled not to. Before we move on, it's time for an update on the end of season fun that is the Race F1 Cup. And I'm delighted to say that joining us with all the info is the race's social media guru, Megan Cancel. Now, Megan, before we go on, can you just give us a quick overview of what the Race F1 Cup is in case any listeners are unfamiliar? Hi. Yep, I can give you a quick overview. So the idea was now that both championships have been won, just to keep things interesting and give people something to play for until the end of the season. So we had the group stage last week in Mexico, the quarterfinals of this weekend in Brazil, then we've got the semifinals in Las Vegas and the final will be in Abu Dhabi. So we've had the group stages and we're into round two now. You've done the draw for Brazil, I think. So could you let us know who will be taking part in the quarterfinals? 
Yep, we've uh, we've done the draw. So quarterfinal one will be Hamilton versus Piastri. Oh, that's a tough one with uh, McLaren and Mercedes going well. Yep. Quarterfinal two, Russell versus Gasly. Tough one for anyone in an Alpine. Bad luck, Pierre Gasly. <laughs> Quarterfinal three is maybe the biggest one, Leclerc versus Norris. Oh, that's going to be a pretty tough one. I could go either way. And quarterfinal four is Science versus Ocon. Another difficult one for an Alpine driver. But they both made the quarterfinals, so who knows? Perhaps they're, uh, they're blessed in this particular competition. Exactly. And so now this is a straight knockout competition, isn't it? So the winner of each head-to-head goes through to the semis in Vegas, is that right? Yeah, that's it. It's just whoever finishes higher on the day. So again, not taking into account the sprint element of the weekend, just the Grand Prix on Sunday. I picked Sergio Perez to win the cup and he crashed out instantly. We suggested on the last podcast that was because of the pressure of the uh, uh, of the cup. But how about your pick or picks, wasn't it? Because didn't you do some spectacular fence sitting when you were picking your winner? I did, and both of them have very much made it through. So Hamilton's made it through and Sites have made it through. And arguably Sites has perhaps the easier draw, but Hamilton obviously is on a very good run of form. So I'm still feeling fairly confident in either of them, to be honest. Well, based on previous form, I think it was wise that I don't make any predictions and we we stick with your predictions as the uh, more reliable ones. But good luck for you for Brazil for your picks. We'll update listeners on results in our post-race podcast. But before you go, Megan, can you let us know how everyone can follow along and maybe get involved with this? Yep, so we're updating everybody on the race social media channels, whether that's X, formerly known as Twitter, although I'll still call it Twitter, Instagram at We Are The Race. Um, it's on Facebook as well. Obviously, hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, you, you might already follow us on there, but we'll be updating everyone at each stage along the way. Um, we asked for people to predict their overall winner last week, so someone will win the little competition we've got running from that post but we're still encouraging people to get involved and sort of pick who will go through from each round and it's just a bit of fun but people are enjoying it and getting involved with it. Yeah it certainly added a little bit of interest to the end of the season I'm sure the drivers involved will be very much determined to win this it's second prize to the world championship I'd say so thanks very much Megan and we'll be joined by you again hopefully ahead of the Las Vegas Grand Prix. Thank you very much. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's move on now to what I'll call Brazilian things, Lito, because while we've got you here, we've got to get the Brazilian view of Felipe Massa's legal bid aimed at changing the 2008 World Championship results after what happened in Singapore. Is he getting popular support over this in Brazil? Not that much. Not that much. Uh, There are two points of view. Uh, One of them, people that uh, think that he's seeking for money. That's the reason why uh, he made such a move. And there's a, another side, it's a smaller one, that believes, really believes that uh, he's going for justice. He looks for justice. I myself uh, believe I'm in the second group. I think that he's looking for justice because uh, it's been very hard for him that whole season, the end of the season, uh, he was champion for 30 seconds and then he was no more. And that was tough for him. That was very harsh for him. Uh, And now he heard to hear from Bernie Eccleston that they knew and they accepted such an unfair situation. And after that, he see the two big guys from Renault that were banned for life. Do you remember that? They are back in Formula One. And everything makes it hard to swallow. And it's, it's typical of Filippi. 
He will die for fighting for it. It doesn't matter what I think, what you think, whoever thinks. He's going for it. I really believe that his motivation is justice. But that's not the common opinion here. Many people think that he's just going for money. Yeah, I've always thought he had a sincere belief in that because he's always talked about the Singapore thing over the years with, with real feeling he feels it was unjust. But yeah, it's a very, very messy thing to untangle though, isn't it? Because you can't really rewrite history in, in that way, ultimately. And I imagine that even if he were to, they've talked about him being given the world championship or even being given a share in the world championship. I can't see that really being accepted anywhere as, uh, because what happened happened. Yes, it was, it, he can quite legitimately say it was unfair, but there's nothing I can actually see in terms of redress because all you do is disqualify Alonso from Singapore. That doesn't change anything because then you're saying, oh, well, if that hadn't happened, then this hadn't happened and all these other things. It changes everything, doesn't it? So it's, it, 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 yeah, it shouldn't have happened, but you can't, sometimes you can't fix things. Yes, I think that it's, it's completely uh, unforeseeable. I, I, I don't have a clue what can happen, what can come out of it. But... Uh, I think that's not his motivation. He's not looking uh, at the end of the question. Uh, his problem or his motivation is to uh, that Formula One cannot live with these kind of things, with this kind of behavior. Uh, they can't accept such a move. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very, very interesting story. Of course, Massa, I think, has indicated he won't be in Telagos this weekend. He was a Formula One ambassador, and uh, that's sort of been paused for, for recent races. He goes to some races. Um, certainly, he wasn't a Monza, he said. He wasn't a Suzuka. He was meant to be. So, yeah, that, there's a little bit of uh, of disconnect there. I don't think the FIA and F1 are giving him much time of day on on this sort of thing. Val, do you have a particular opinion on, on this? Are you going to argue for history being rewritten? Oh, I don't know, man. This is a this is a complicated one. I I can offer my my perception that there are some sports that have an easier time rewriting very old history compared to other sports, and I don't I don't think Formula One is on the side of having a particularly easy time. I think the way we generally see it is a, a championship outcome is enshrined once a once a fairly small amount of time has passed. Ideally, at the checkered flag, right? But at worst, like one or two days after. And of course, if you, uh, if you look at this one, then you look at 94, you look at 2021, you look at, I mean, there's, a, there's a few things you look at. I personally, I would, I would like to give Ken Miles the Le Mans win. I know this is not Formula One, but you know the one I'm talking about. So this is a whole can of worms we, we can go in with. I, I'm also not in the, in the camp of thinking that this is like a money grab of some kind. Because I think to him this is probably more important than money because a Formula One World Championship is something that his entire life had revolved around for years and years and years and years. And even when he left Formula One, I'm not entirely sure he was completely ready to do it. And now suddenly, all these years later, there might be a chance to... Or at least, you know, he perceives there as being a chance to, to be Formula One world champion without racing in Formula One. Or at least be recognized as somebody denied a rightful Formula One world title, recognized in the history books. I couldn't tell you. I'm, I can't say I'm particularly, like, super sympathetic to the to exact specific of the, of the cause. I think you have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to really make it work in terms of changing the result. And also, obviously... I think there, there can be no scenario in which Lewis Hamilton loses his 2008 world title 15 years after. That's ridiculous. That cannot happen. Like, that's, that's the kind of stuff you reserve for Lance Armstrong, I guess, right? Can't happen. Doesn't happen. <laughs> well, you, um, could have the, you could have the outcome where nobody wins the uh, 2008 world championship, much like those seven uh, Tour de France. <laughs> I can't believe they've done that. I can't believe that's the, I can't believe that's the situation. But anyway... Yeah, it's look. It's a complicated situation, which is you know, which is good for us because we get to really discuss it and do it from multiple angles. Because it was just a, if it was just a clear cut bit of total nonsense or a clear cut super just cause, then we we talk about it once or twice and then we're done. But every time you think about it, you sort of get a new bit of feeling about it, if that makes sense. But yeah, the one axiom I have is that Lewis Hamilton has to stay the two thousand eight champion. Yeah, it seems reasonable. It's just the way with sport, isn't it? It's not always fair. 
sport as well you can always point to something so yeah that's that's one of the uh one of the factors that you, you can't ignore but Lito it's worth mentioning Felipe's still racing isn't he people may not not have seen him in action particularly recently since he stopped Formula E but he's still out there in, in this part of the world Yes, he's in his second season in stock cars. Now he's learning a, 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 a new way of racing, a new way of driving. And now he's starting to cope better with the car, with the tracks. And he got, I think it was his first podium last week. And he's starting to do all right. But anyway, um, he's still uh, alive and kicking. Yeah, very competitive championship stock cars. And uh, just because you're a successful F1 driver doesn't mean you drop into it and win it. Rubens Barrichello did win it uh, some years ago. That was a pretty impressive achievement, wasn't it? Yes, he won in 2016. And from from then uh, up to this, mo- to this season, uh, he's been winning, winning, but no titles anymore. It's quite tough. It's quite tough. You, you, If you... Take a look at the grid. Sometimes uh, you'd say, well, that should be an oval racing because it's not tens, it's hundreds, the difference between the, 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 the grid positions. Yeah, it's well worth if anybody's interested having a bit of a look on YouTube for some of the footage because it's, uh, yeah, it's a great, great championship, but not one that has a big uh, international following. Val, staying on the topic of Brazil... Obviously, one of the perennial topics is the lack of Brazilian drivers in F1. Obviously, Felipe Massa, he retired at the end of 2017. He was the last one. If you had to pick out a Brazilian driver who has what it takes to make an impact in F1, either now or in a few years, which one would it be? And we'll see if Lito agrees with you. I think uh, I thought this was going to be a Stock Car Brazil episode now. And we could talk about the other XF1 drivers in there. I mean, Nelsinho Piquet's in there. Uh, Ricardo Zonta, I believe part of the series also and yeah anyway digressing massively um I, i'm digressing because the question you've asked i don't like it not in the sense that it's a bad question but in the sense that i i feel myself twisting into a pretzel trying to answer it um because brazil does have honestly a pretty good junior representation i'm g- generally impressed with it but there's nobody who has separated himself in my mind to where I feel confident backing that driver above the other drivers. I'm hearing a lot of obfuscation here, so I'm, I'm going to have to press you for an answer. <laughs> Rafael Camara? Interesting. Well, Alito, yeah, so Alito doesn't agree, but I... <laughs> well, well, make your case for him, because that's, that's an interesting call, and I, I, you follow this very closely, so you are a uh, uh, somebody who is very well qualified for an opinion. Rafael Camara, uh, currently in Formula Regional, just ended the season. He was Prima teammates with Andrea Kimi Antonelli, the Mercedes Golden Boy. Andrea Kimi Antonelli won the title, and in, in their two years together in Formula 4 and Formula Regional, the Mercedes kid Antonelli has been the, the superstar, and Camara has been lagging behind. But if you sort of ignore the Antonelli elephant in the room, Camara has been pretty good. He has Ferrari's backing currently. He should have options going forward. Sometimes you don't have to be a superstar immediately to start your junior single-seater career. You just have to be pretty good, and then you maybe learn some things and pick it up. And he's young enough to where I think there's some wiggle room, even if he's not an Antonelli-level super talent. And he's clearly a talented bloke. Lito's now going to tell you why you're wrong. No, I, 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 I'm not saying that he's wrong. I think the problem is not... Uh, about an uh, individual driver is the problem is the the whole scene, and the problem with Rafael Kamarak uh, is Antonelli. That's the problem. It's the same problem that every driver had in Schumacher's day, Schumacher's days in in Vettel's days in in Red Bull, and that's the problem with Kamarak. I think Kamarak is really really good, but the problem is that he's at the same age. Uh, as Antonelli, you know, so I don't think uh, he will stand a chance. I don't think he, there's a, there's room for two of them. I think that's the problem. But he's good, of course, he's good. He's very good. I would go for uh, for Gabriel Bortoleto, but with the same kind of question. He's been very good in Formula Three, but. When they get there in the window for Formula One, who is going to be fighting him? That's a problem with everybody. But I think Gabriel Bortoleto has uh, what it takes as a driver 
and his backup. You know, he's got a, a wealthy family. Uh, his, the, his family got the right connections. He got the, he's got the support of A4 team, the, the uh, Alonso's management team, and they are really good. And so who has the best chance is Gabriel Botolet. But I wouldn't even say that he's better than Camara. I think he's got a better opportunity than Camara. But of course, he'll be a rookie in F2 next year, and yes. who also will be a rookie in F2, Antonelli. So that's the interesting one, isn't it, Val? There's, um, <laughs> we keep talking about this, but it's going to be interesting F2 next year in that regard with Antonelli there and obviously Behrman's going into it, going into another season with Primer, So, Bortoletto. So it's, I guess this is the measure everybody in the junior ranks is being, uh, is having to try and live up to because Antonelli is the current designated next big thing and with good reason. Yeah, Bortoletto has, has had an exceptional season in, in Formula 3 and he's really, I think he's shocked and surprised a lot of people and it was it was the kind of title that you win with consistent scoring. He won just the two races, but that the, the exact same description applies to Oscar Piastri in Formula Three. So same with Esteban Ocon. Obviously, F three GP three has yeah. been like that for a very long time. It's not a yeah. It's not like the old days of F three when you could when a great driver could dominate it. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, the, the discount him at your own risk, but it's the sort of thing where the seasons before F three. Like, he was clearly a, a good racing driver, but I didn't see this kind of thing. So to, to feel, to to say Gabriel Bartoletto, I, I'd have to have seen a little more, and maybe that's on me. Maybe I should have looked closer. But yeah, in terms of talent, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if Kyle Collett is the most talented one of them all around, but he's been on the Formula 3 level forever in varying levels of machinery. I think his ship has probably sailed. I think Felipe Drugovic's ship might have sailed. I think his Formula 2 title season was one completely deserving of at least one Formula 1 campaign. So you see, there's there's a lot of drivers that you sort of go back and forth and waver on. Enzo Fittipaldi, I think, has made a, a very good impression in Formula 2 so far, but Red Bull has 5 million drivers for those seats. So why should he overtake them? And, you know, the fact that it wasn't him testing the testing the car in FP1, it was Isaac Hadjiar. That also probably tells us something. It's it's sort of both an embarrassment of riches, but also in a way where nobody really massively stands out to me yet. But I mean, it's easy to say. And at the very least, all of these guys should be good, professional, capable racing drivers. I also was also interested. I'm going to mention another one, although he's he's now in Stock Car Brazil. Funnily enough, uh, Gianluca Petakoff was an interesting Ferrari junior who seemed to just run out of backing to be doing this junior single-seater thing. But I was wondering if he also had an outside shot at some point of really, really making a push, but no can do. Stock Car Brazil's not bad. Good place to be in. Yeah, Gianluca now is starting to rise up in Stock Car. I think he's a wasted talent, but he didn't have the money. That as simple as that. And that's a big problem for the Brazilian drivers. To put the money in Europe, you pay uh, a, a lot of taxes and you have no kind of uh, something to make it easier. Not at all. And so, at the end of the day, uh, I think that in five, ten years, you're going to see all of these hopes doing stock cars. And just, just going back to Bartoletto, of course, and this is, this is fairly recent news, so it keeps slipping my mind, but he is... He is now part of the McLaren Junior program, but which you know it's it's good. It's good to be attached to a to Formula One program. McLaren, I think, has a decent record of of bringing drivers into Formula One. He's not without competition in that program, but yeah, should be good. McLaren has no pressing need for for drivers right this second, but who knows? Maybe maybe Red Bull will finally poach Lando Norris, like I've been asking them to for the past five years or whatever. <laughs> I think that would probably require even more money than Red Bull have got uh, to surprise him out of uh, out of McLaren, especially with how well McLaren are doing. I don't think Norris would necessarily want to move on uh, at this stage. But uh, yeah, well, I think everyone in F1 would like to see a Brazilian driver uh, on the grid. Do you th- is it a big deal for Brazil to have a, a driver again? Is it a big talking point here? Yes, it is. But anyway, I think that uh, the the big problem is good racing. That's what people is missing because when it was 2021 
when uh, Lewis and Max were head-to-head, nobody was talking about missing a Brazilian driver. They were talking about Max and Lewis. Now, they complain about Max being the champion since the first race, because he was, and the Red Bull being the best car by far. And then they say, well, maybe if there was a Brazilian driver, it's a kind of a consolation prize. <laughs> and of course, what you really need is a Brazilian driver up front. That would be the thing that, uh, that changes things. So let's hope that happens again, because there's a great tradition in, uh, in Formula One. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, we'll finish off with a few questions from the race members club that we didn't quite get to in our Mexican Grand Prix review. The first one's from Chris Shaw. Lito, we'll aim this one at you. Chris asks, is Alex Albon in the best possible position to be the next teammate to Max Verstappen? It seems inevitable that Red Bull will lose patience with Perez. Albon, of course, is out of contract at the end of next year. So so maybe, uh, maybe Alex Albon as Verstappen's teammate once again. Yes, I think he he's uh, the the right name because he's been there. He knows the the, the way they work. Uh, there's no more surprises. Things that uh, went against him in the first time he was there now will go. Uh, going to help him, and he's for sure. I wouldn't say he's a safe pair of hands. I would say he's a fast safe pair of hands and a major driver now. I think Albon's the right name. Yeah, Albon's been really, really impressive this year. I guess the real question, Val, with Albon is whether he'd want to go back to Red Bull to repeat history. He's certainly a more rounded driver than he was then. But I suspect there'll be other good opportunities coming Albon's way that maybe will think that wouldn't be a good idea. But they do like him. I, I think he'd go. But I, my hunch is that if the very central decision makers at Red Bull don't change, that I'm actually not convinced that that would happen even though Alex Albon has been very good at Williams but I'm just I have I have my doubts about Red Bull being particularly keen to have a to have a second go because in Red Bull's case it would be a third go remember they let Alex Albon go at the very start of his junior single seater career brought him back into the fold for Formula 1 then effectively let him go again I'm sure they they like him decently enough and they certainly I think it it, it isn't a Pierre Gasly case of there's no way you're getting into into the main team again, even if you win the next 18 races or whatever, which is how it felt like. But I'm still, I think Red Bull likes to be creative and bold and go off hunches. And I'm not sure their hunch would be that we should bring back Alex again. But maybe I'm wrong. Let's let's clip this for in two years time and Alex Albon is back in the Red Bull again. Yeah, it's certainly a headache for Red Bull. That's the main thing. And I, I guess the fact that Albon will be on the market in 25 and with the need for uh, or the desire for potentially move up the grid, he's very aware that he hasn't got infinite time. Maybe that could add up. But yeah, going back is a difficult one. I think they're, more, they're much more likely to go back with someone like Albon than they were with, say, Pierre Gasly. But yeah. But they're much more likely to, to go back with Daniel Ricciardo, who they did not let go, who left off his own volition and who I think... I think they still like love genuinely like have a, a a burning burning desire for it's weird choice of words man but it's like it's late in the evening yeah and i think certainly the fact that he's in the stable that makes that a very very easy driver to slot in so yeah let's see what happens with that but we should say perez is under contract and christian horner says it's their intention to run him next year which is slightly odd phrasing but uh anyway 
Val, now a question, an interesting one from Joe Graham, who says, Lance Stroll is only 25. Do you think he and Max Verstappen perhaps started F1 too young? Both have been linked with early retirements, but have done a lot of Grand Prix already. I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to figure out what too young means in this case, because it's, it's a good question, but it's one that can be taken, I think, in a variety of ways. Are they too young in the sense that they're going to be burnt out by 30, by the by, by age 30, by all the 30 race calendars that await us in the future? Potentially. I'm not sure. I'm not sure a human being was designed to do 600 Formula One races or whatever it is we're in pace to, to tracking to do. Um, there are some drivers who can do it, clearly pull it off, but it neither neither Max nor Lance seem the type of characters who would want to basically commit all of their prime <laughs> to that, if that makes any sense. Um, but I don't like they weren't too young. Certainly Max wasn't too young coming in, obviously. He was good right away. He got even better and now he's he's amazing and he's still super, super young. I remember yeah, I I'd like to think of myself as relatively young and I remember watching the guy in European F3 and marveling and I couldn't imagine how how quickly he'd he'd get to this Formula One thing. I think the the, the 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 important thing for me here is if if this is a consideration that drivers are arriving to Formula One too too early, then the way to fix it is to stretch out and I would basically say everything but starting with the karting system. Do we want perhaps potentially a Formula One where drivers arrive older? If we do, then we also want a Formula Two where drivers arrive older, a Formula Three where drivers arrive older, because all of those are basically, you know, like full-time professions and they railroad very, very young people into a certain way of living. And for most of them, it will not end in Formula One. So they then find themselves in a position to, to scramble to figure out what they're doing with their lives. Or, But for some of them, it is Formula One, but that's also the, the, the only life they've known. And you're 25 and you've raced in 150 Formula One Grand Prix. That's weird. It's It's a philosophical question, I think, more than anything. Do we want to stretch out the system before Formula One? Do we want uh, drivers to arrive to more powerful machines later in their lifespan? Do we want kids to have more of a time to be kids? I don't know. Maybe it sounds appealing when I put it in a certain way, but at the same time, this is elite sport and it's not that different to other elite sports where also uh, footballers, whatever, NFL players, gymnasts, obviously, they start super young, don't they? So... I, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a tough one. It's an interesting one, but it's a tough one. I don't think they came in too young, but I think maybe everybody comes in too young. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a curious question. And I think, or an interesting question rather, but obviously I think Verstappen and Stroll are in very different circumstances because Verstappen is basically saying there's too many races. He can't necessarily see himself, see himself doing this forever. But then again, in a, a few, he might find himself feeling a little bit different in 2028 to how he feels he might feel right now because we're still some years off that but in Stroll's case I think it was a question of why he's here and whether it's absolutely the be-all and end-all for him or not I think if you're good enough you're old enough however I think if you're looking at it as a pure case of maximizing the ability of drivers I think and we've talked about this before we need to get away from the perception that every driver needs to be Max Verstappen freak of nature and brilliant at 17 18 because he was already very, very good when he came into Formula One. You have to let the drivers mature. And I think the danger is when we expect drivers to instantly win in every category, be an F1 by 20 latest, and if they're 22 and they're winning F2 or they're, they're, old, they're old men or something, I think we need to accept that different people develop at a different time. That's probably the perspective that I think needs to change a little bit to make sure that the best drivers get to Formula One because, hey, people develop at different rates. The brain develops at slightly different rates for different people. So, yeah, give uh, perhaps a little bit more of a chance. But that's made very difficult because racing in F2 is so expensive. And all the junior categories have just got more and more expensive over the years. So you can't hang around for ages because... You won't have infinite money to uh, to do it. The final question we've got, Lito, is an interesting one from Jeremy Husted, who says, shouldn't we stop saying that the RB19 is one of the most dominant F1 cars ever? In pure speed and especially qualifying, its pace is good, but not close to dominant cars of the past, including several recent Mercedes. Wouldn't it be more appropriate to say that it's a good car that Max Verstappen and Red Bull have used to the fullest to produce those incredible results? Those making clones may reach natural ceilings, given they lack the team and driver to make them as special. Yeah, I think I think Jeremy is quite right here. 
because, yeah, uh, no doubt Red Bull and Max Verstappen took the very best of a marvelous car. So, uh, yes, it's one of the most dominant Formula One cars ever, not the most one, um, the most dominant one, maybe. Uh, but, well, if you consider qualifies and races, of course, there were some Mercedes in Hamilton's hands that were more dominant. But come Sunday, no, I think it's the most dominant ever cast. It's an interesting question, dominance, because I think if you've got a a team, a car that has won all but one race, it is by definition dominant. But it, it's very interesting the way they've made those trade-offs and made sure they've got the quick car on the Sunday a little bit closer on the on the Saturday. And that perhaps, I think, points to a car the dominance of which lies in its consistency across a wide range of conditions as well, because some of the other cars can be a bit more peaky and up and down. So I almost feel like you couldn't have a McLaren 88 situation with the way teams are and the rules are. And obviously, generally, gaps have got smaller over the years. So it's it's interesting because domination can be quite context-dependent because the question absolutely right that it it's not 1.5% quicker than anyone. It's not doing what Williams did at Silverstone in 92 and qualifying two seconds faster than anyone else. Mansell was 2.2 seconds quicker than Patrese in the same car. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it's an interesting little way of how you parse dominance. Yeah, it's, for me, it's the, the question is, does the definition of dominance include the ability to bring two cars home more often than not, because obviously we we might go back to the 1950s or 60s and find some real dominant cars there, but because of the nature of the sport back then, or even in the 80s, 90s, there was always it was it was a guarantee that those cars were just not always designed to do what the modern cars are doing, which is to say reliably finish races. So that's you know it's a question of whether that's part of it. I think. Yeah, I think probably in. In terms of when it's when you look at the sort of points advantage and that kind of thing, that points can be dangerous, but that reflects the overall package. That reflects absolutely everything, including reliability, which reliability is less of a concern this year. But yeah, it's uh, that that's probably one way of looking at it. But it's it's only a dominant car. But uh, yeah, interesting question. Well, Verstappen's car is the most dominant. I wouldn't say the same thing for the other car. Well, I, I think yeah, it's a good point, and I, I think it. It shows how important Verstappen is to that, but ultimately, yeah, the laws of physics uh, the laws of physics define how fast the car can be. Verstappen doesn't drive it faster than physics allows, so that I always conceptualise it as there's there's a physical limit. What Verstappen does do is unlock more potential in the development path by having a car that's theoretically quicker with the, the the rear being quite lively but he can he can deal with it he can make that work so that's a really fast way to drive a car but it's not easy and throughout history there have been so many drivers who've been able to do that and teammates haven't Schumacher was always able to do it so that this is the interesting thing it becomes a virtuous circle that people talk about is it car or drive well it's both you need both of them you can't just put any driver in I mentioned the 92 Williams the reason Mansell was so much quicker than Patrese, having been relatively evenly matched in 91, was the switch to active. Mansell could commit to it, knowing the grip would, would be there when the suspension adjusted. Patrese couldn't buy into that. He couldn't accept the grip was there unless he felt it that instant he, he turned in. And that's the difference. So, yeah, it shows that you need the driver to get the most out of the car and, it, and its development. So, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting one. And the final question, which was meant to be the penultimate question, but uh, I lost track of, of the order. It's a quick one I take, so I thought it was an interesting one. It does relate to that. It's from Chris Fielder, who says, if Lewis Hamilton does finish second in the World Championship, would that be the first time a driver has finished second without winning a race? It's an interesting question, and there's every chance if he does finish second, I think the gap is 20 points, that it would be without winning a race because it's dependent on Perez making errors and Verstappen could win uh, the, the final uh, the final three Grand Prix for, for all we know. It wouldn't actually be the first time, but it would be the first time in a very long time. Ronnie Peterson's the famous case in the March in 71. He wasn't a, a threat there, but he was very consistent, actually, um, almost counter to his reputation. But, yeah, Peterson was very impressive in that. And the other one was uh, Nino Farina in 52 in the Ferrari in the F2 years, up against Ant- uh, Antonio Ascari. Antonio Ascari was his uh, his father. who was killed at Monterey in 1925. A great Grand Prix driver in his own right. But, yeah, Alberto Ascari, who was absolutely the Verstappen of that era, stunningly dominant in those, uh, those F2 Ferraris of 52 and 53. And, yeah, Farina was... Um, 
quite an old man by that time as well in terms of he'd obviously been a pre-war driver so it does happen but it has not happened for an incredibly long time and it it's um it, it's it's more a more remarkable achievement almost these days with so many races and uh it, it means you can be competitive and getting good results all season but you've got just a team blocking the way there's only been one grand prix that red bull hasn't won and it was carlos Sainz that that nabbed it so yeah it says a lot about the way this season's gone well thanks very much to val and leto for your insight head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen plenty to read there check out our other podcasts including the race f1 tech show with gary anderson i'll bring back v10s as well which tells classic f1 stories our indycar podcast MotoGP, where val is often to be heard and also formula e and check out our youtube channel for short and long form videos and also the race in brazil our YouTube channel with uh, with Lito. That's uh, well worth a watch for Portuguese speakers among you. Well, we're now going to be turning our attention to Interlagos, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the Brazilian Grand Prix. The Athletic. <laughs> 